0: Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. Okay guys, here's what we're doing this week. We are going to talk about violence in the Old Testament. Specifically, we're going to talk about God's command to destroy the Canaanites. He gave that command to Joshua and the Israelites when they entered the promised land. You know, the last two weeks at church, we've actually touched on this issue. And we have to address it, even though it's tough. It is really, really tough. This is one of the big objections that people have with Christianity. They say, look, the God of the Old Testament, he seems angry. He seems violent. He, he even seems to many of them amoral. He seems to condone genocide for crying out loud. How can Christians believe in a God like that? And that is a great question. It is a formidable question. And it's one that we ought to be able to answer. Now, the answer is not easy. We're going to do our best in this episode to bring some clarity to that question. Now, before we get into the arguments, there's just a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all. You know the saying, um, people who live in glass houses should not throw stones? Well, the truth is that the 20th century and the 21st century is shaping up along the same lines, is actually way more violent than any century during ancient times. And we should not forget that, because people think that we now believe that violence is wrong uh, in a way that ancient civilizations didn't. But that's not entirely accurate we have better restraints on violence than people did in ancient times but we're not much better in many other ways I'll give you one quick example abortion in our culture western culture we kill babies at an alarming rate and we do it with government sanction and government funding so we should be careful to throw stones that's the first thing uh, the second thing is, is that actually this issue is an example of how important it is to read the Bible properly. If you read it out of context and you read these stories out of con- context, you'll say, oh, that's awful. And and you'll never be able to make heads or tails out of it. So we need to read the Bible well. And then the third thing is we need to remember that this issue was for a particular time and a particular place. You know, the Exodus story, God bringing the people across the Red Sea, is repeated over and over and over in the Bible. But the events of the conquest of Canaan are never regarded as a norm for God's people in the rest of the Bible. It's in no way meant to be a paradigm that we should look to for guidance on how we should live today. So, just remember those three things as we try to go through these arguments together. Here's what we're going to do. Two broad things. First of all, we're going to Explain why God commanded the killing of the Canaanites in the first place, and then talk about how to understand that command given the context and the meaning of it. So, first of all, why did God command the killing of the Canaanites? There's there's two major reasons that the Bible gives. First of all, Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 9, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. That's from Deuteronomy 9. These people were wicked. They were terribly wicked in their behavior. Leviticus 18 gives details of many of the sinful religious practices of the Canaanites, which included child sacrifices to the god Moloch, incest, bestiality, homosexuality, and cultic prostitution. And it was not just that these things happened, okay, because these things have happened— in all cultures throughout history. Rather, it was that these things were not just not punished, they were often promoted. They were part of the cultic practices of the religion. And we need to realize that the extreme sin of the Canaanites was connected to their religious practices. Deuteronomy 12, verse 31 says, "'You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, "'because in worshiping their gods, "'they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates.'" In other words, their religion gave birth to and produced these kinds of wicked behaviors. And by the way, you know what this means. You know what, the, you know what the implication of this is? Friends, we have to be willing to admit and be willing to state honestly that not all cultures and not all religions are equally valid or equally good some are closer to god's intention for humankind and some are further away from god's intention for humankind i bet that for some of you listening that sounds off it grates on your ears and if so you're like me because you and i we have been heavily indoctrinated by our culture to never believe let alone never actually say out loud that some cultures or some religions are better than others. But this is what scripture teaches. And you know what? If you think about it, it makes total sense. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's a useful one. Think about this. Jesus says that he is God in human form. That's his claim. He is the only founder of a major religion to do that. He says, I am God incarnate. I am divine. Now, either that's true or that's false. It's not a matter of taste or opinion. You can't say, I like this flavor of ice cream better than that flavor of ice cream and apply that to Jesus' claim. It's, it's either a fact or it's not a fact. But if Jesus is actually God incarnate, if it is a fact, then he is better ...than the founders of all the other religions. And his religion, that is, Christianity, is better than other religions. I'm not saying that there's nothing good in other religions. I'm just saying that Christianity is better. And it actually shouldn't bother us to think that. And to even say that. It's, only, it's really the only rational conclusion you can come to... ...if Jesus really is who he said he is. Anyway, back to the main point here. God told Israel to destroy the Canaanites because of their wickedness. And and by the way, this means that what they did is not ethnic cleansing. It is not based on race. It was based on morality as reflected in the culture and religious practices. So it's unfair to use this command as a justification for warfare of one ethnicity against another and it's also unfair to use this as a, a slam against the genocidal God of the Old Testament okay so the wickedness was reason number one what's the second reason God told the Israelites to destroy the candidates Canaanites well it was to preserve them the Israelites from the religions of the Canaanites in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 18, when God commands the Israelites to kill everyone in the cities of Canaan, the reason he gives is this, quote, Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. Now remember, the religious purity of Israel was not only important for their own sake, but because God's intention was that they would function as witness to his power and goodness to the other nations. This is why it was so vital to God that Israel start off their life in the land without the influence of false religions that would lead them away from him. Now, if you keep reading the Old Testament, you discover that Israel did not do as God commanded. And exactly what he said would happen, did happen. Israel followed the religions of the nations all the nations around them, to the point where they were now defaming and disgracing God's, nation, God's name to those nations around them. And so we need to remember that God's plan ultimately was to bring his salvation to the whole world through the people of Israel. So their preservation was about much more than just themselves. The stakes were eternally high. Okay, That's why. But, you know, it doesn't explain everything, does it? I mean, it may be that the stakes were very high and the Canaanites were super wicked, but still, annihilate them? That just seems over the top. And I agree, it does. And so we have to do some more hard thinking here to understand. And there's a number of things things to remember that I think help us deal with this objection. First of all, it is likely, though admittedly it is not definitive— I totally admit that. It is likely that the phrase wipe them out or destroy them completely did not actually mean kill every man, woman, and child in every instance. The language used is similar to the kind of language that one sports team might say about winning big against another team. So in a soccer game, you win 7-0 and you say, oh yeah, we decimated them. We totally annihilated them. It's a way of describing total victory. But honestly, we we can't be sure. And it sure does look like God says, destroy them all. Fair enough. So let's remember this. God was actually hugely patient with the Canaanites. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be slaves in a foreign country for 400 years but that they will return to the land of Canaan after four generations. The reason given for this delay is because, and I quote, the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. At the time of Abraham, there is evidence that the Canaanites had some knowledge of the true God. And it seems that over the period from Abraham to Joshua, the Canaanites had gradually rejected what they knew about God and moved Deeper and deeper into sin. It was only when their sin reached a certain level of severity that God decided to use the Israelites to bring judgment on them. And we know that by the time Joshua and the Israelites came to the land of Canaan, the Canaanites had heard about God and what he had done to rescue them from Egypt. Read that in Joshua 2. But they didn't repent, they stayed rebellious. And yet, at the same time, don't forget this, there was salvation for any Canaanite that did repent. Rahab, she was a Canaanite prostitute living in the city of Jericho, but she repented, put her faith in God, and therefore she was spared. Next thing to consider. The war was not carried out on the basis of imperialistic expansion. The Israelites were never allowed to profit from their war. They were not allowed to plunder or enslave any of the people they encountered. In fact, if they ever tried to, they were punished severely for doing so. You remember Achan, who hid the treasure from Jericho? Finally, this event is based on what a theologian named Meredith Klein called the intrusion ethic. Follow me on this. God is all-knowing, right? He knows everything. So he knows the end from the the beginning. Therefore, he alone has the right knowledge to see people who will be condemned on judgment day because they refuse to repent. And he has the right, therefore, to bring his judgment down on those people early, in a sense. He doesn't have to wait until judgment day to execute his judgment on earth if he chooses to in that sense the future judgment intrudes on the present and you might say well that's unusual is that even fair but hold on a second you can say the same thing about the gospel then the gospel promises if you are a believer in Jesus Christ those promises intrude on the present life as well at the last day Christians will be ushered into the fullness of salvation, but they experience that salvation in this life too, the joy, the security, the identity, the freedom from guilt, the freedom from judgment, the freedom from fear. So why can it not work both ways? The truth is the Bible says that all humanity, all humanity is currently under the same sentence of judgment that the Canaanites were under. You know that great passage in John chapter 3, where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. John three sixteen. It's a great verse. But we should keep reading. Here's what it says right after that. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, we like that. Verse 18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The whole point of the gospel is to provide a way of escape from that judgment. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain writes this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell or the doctrine of judgment is itself a question? What are you asking God to do? to wipe out their past sins and, at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty, and offering every miraculous help? But He has done so on Calvary. End quote: "We absolutely have to remember the context of the discussion." The Bible says that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He offers forgiveness to anyone who would simply humble themselves and admit they need it. That's it. When you look at the cross of Jesus, you have to conclude that he is forgiving. And, and even if we say he should just forgive, Lewis continues, quote, you want him to forgive them? they will not be forgiven do you want him to leave them alone alas i am afraid that is what he does end quote what lewis is saying is is that the judgment that people experience at the last day is ultimately a self-chosen judgment because he has offered these people forgiveness And they have rejected it. And he says, they say to him, leave me alone, leave me alone, leave me alone. And at the last day, he will finally say, all right, thy will be done. Now, admittedly, we are still feeling a little unease over this. I get it. I feel it myself. (laughs) So let me end with a couple thoughts. First of all, Remember, again, it's really easy for us modern folk to feel condescending or offended by what we read in Judges, for example. But we should not assume that we'd, if we had been born and lived during that time, we would have been much more enlightened than everyone else. And don't forget, our century has been far more bloody and violent than those times, partly because we've got the technology to be very efficient at killing one another. And remember, even if we are less violent, and even if it does seem like it attacks our sensibilities to see this violence, we live in a society today that has been deeply, deeply influenced by the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is rooted in the very Bible that contains these disturbing stories. So we are benefiting from God's progressive teaching of his people about how he calls human beings to live over many, many, many centuries. And secondly, this all comes down to your view of the Bible, really. Is it inspired? Is it the inspired and inerrant word of God or not? And if it is, and remember, Jesus himself thought it was, And we have to come to it from the perspective of, look, I don't quite understand it, not all of it at least, but I trust it. And that goes for this issue as well as a whole host of others. I don't quite understand it, but I trust it. And so I start from the standpoint of trust, and from there, I try to gain understanding. Faith seeking understanding. Until next time, friends, that is all for today. Have a great week.